Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to Knock at Night. How are you doing? It's me, Bushido Squirrel. I'm joined tonight by Ace Kitano from the L.A. Public Defender's Office, uh, as well as their union. How are you doing, Ace? Doing good. That's the first time I saw the, the fish opening. That was very, very cool. Uh, we we got some cool artists. Yeah, I know. I love it. Um, good to you know. Good to be here. Ace Catano, uh, Ground Game LA, Los Angeles Public Defenders Union, and we're here with some really uh, awesome people who, yeah. work, who work with me, work in the criminal justice universe, and we're going to like really take a deep dive into what's been going on with the new reforms from the district attorney's office. So, you know, before we jump in, before we bring in the uh, the rest of the law-knowing folks, why don't you set us up a little bit? Like, what's been going on since the election, and why are we sitting down to talk about this today? Okay, well, that's a, that's that's great. So, uh, you if you're if you're listening to this, you've probably heard of Jackie Lacey. You you probably have some sort of context for this. Jackie Lacey was the dis- elected district attorney of Los Angeles. Uh, she was. Uh, thoroughly beaten in November by uh, George Gascon, who was previously the district attorney of San Francisco, also previously a uh, the police chief of San Francisco, the police chief of Mesa, Arizona, I believe, and the uh, police captain with the Los Angeles Police Department. So he has quite a large career over which time he's become a very major advocate of reform of the criminal system and of the police. Um, when George was sworn into office, George, the kids of my buddy, when George Gascon was sworn into office, uh, he came right out the gate with a very, uh, very substantial uh, slate of reform policy directives uh, right on his first day in office. It really hit the ground running with major reforms that not only um, not only were they uh very substantial very substantial in like an absolute sense but also actually surprised a lot of people who had been watching his career beforehand you know i know there are people in our group in ground game who had, were critics of his term as uh as district attorney of san francisco while he'd pushed some reforms there were some things that he had had not done that he had not pushed and that he had seemed to uh, backslide on but he came right out the gate with an extremely strong slate of reforms that uh, really were a major shock to the system in, in both senses of the word. Uh, in, of course, there was an immediate and violent backlash by some incredibly, uh, by, by all the people you'd expect, the cop unions, the NIMBYs, the, uh, a lot of district attorneys who purpose in life, uh, as far as they saw it, is to put black and brown people in jail for as long as possible. And being asked to do something other than that was just an absolute affront to their professional integrity or so they'd have you believe. Um, And as a result, there's a great deal of fear mongering and misinformation that has been spread about what the content of those reforms was, as you can mostly see uh, embodied in the Recall Gascon movement and Facebook page, which is led almost which if you take if you take a second to stick around it, it's led by a bunch of people who love Donald Trump and have all sorts of weird thoughts about George Soros, who you know. Multiple and I parents. mean today, today that's that's especially poignant. And like one of the reasons we want to unpack a lot of this information is like that in that disinformation is is dangerous. Like that disinformation got somebody killed today, and I don't think we thought we were going to be broadcasting on a day like today. 
but it's it's really important that we we keep in mind what happens here in LA County isn't just isolated to LA County, right? This is something like what happens here is going to affect justice across the entire nation. I get the feeling. Well, what happens in Los Angeles absolutely does. The LA District Attorney's Office is the largest district attorney's office in the country. Mm-hmm. LA County and LA County is the largest is a massive county, 10 million plus people, 11 million people, and the district attorney's office is a single unified office as opposed to, you know, New York City has multiple district attorneys. Mm-hmm. Right. This is a, a reform in LA, uh, especially given the history of uh, incarceration in California, which uh, which we're going to go into in a bit, you know, is is an opportunity to really reshape just on a raw numbers scale what incarceration looks like in America. Yeah. Um, no, I think. And, I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and and you know, and there is very concrete opposition to this sort of reform, and it is tied to all the people you would expect. The the uh, district attorneys union, uh, ADDA, uh, their president spent the whole uh, whole election season parroting the same anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about George Soros that you see from Trump and you see from the Republicans. Uh, in her official newsletters. Uh, and, you know, as we covered in Knock recently, a judge gave an interview to, uh, anonymous interview to Met News, where they cast it in the same terms that Gascon's reforms are part of George Soros's plot to destabilize America one city at a time. So the, uh, the, the, the framing of this, you know, especially right now, has to be criminal justice and decarceration are directly implicated in the fight against white supremacy. They are, direct, they are part of the anti-Semitic and anti-Black conspiracy theories that are animating the far right right now. And that the, uh, the so that the, we have to be clear-eyed about the sort of, um, the, the nature and type of opposition that is arising and also how it dovetails with the thin blue line policing mm-hmm. mindset, right? Yeah. Like if there, you know, if there is one thing that I wish I could get across to every person who identifies as liberal in America, it's that defunding the police and defunding the, the carceral state is not just about racial justice. It's not just about economic justice. It is literally about taking resources away from the forces that allow things to happen, like what happened today in DC. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think that's also a good time for us to to pivot and bring in the rest of our guests. I think that's a good grounding. Uh, So yeah, let's go ahead and bring in the rest of these these very astute law-known folks, and we will introduce them here. Hey, all. Welcome to the show. Hi. (laughs) Hello. All right. So let's go around real quick and just have you all introduce yourselves. Um, Tell us a little about what you do and like why you think this is an important thing to be speaking on. So I'll, I'll go ahead and start off with you, Meredith. Oh, hi, everyone. My name is Meredith Gallen. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a public defender and a proud member of our union, Local 148. Um, prior to being a public defender, I worked in prisoners' rights and post-conviction in California. Uh, and so I think that we're in a really historic moment of change. For many years, California has been sort of a laboratory 
for criminal justice reform. Um, the election of George Gascon is only the most recent in a series of um, elections that have led us to a moment where we can really embrace the kind of change that is needed. So as public defenders, we find ourselves in a unique position where we're actually really excited what a DA is doing. Um, and I think there's a lot of misinformation um, and a lot of fear. And we want to make sure that we're able to clarify what's actually happening in the court. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you very much for showing up. Uh, Anna, I'll go to you next. Or Anna, I'm, I'm sorry. Anna sounds fancier. Um, I'm Anna Ritano. Uh, I'm a public defender. I'm a member of the union. I'm speaking from my own experience in defense. Um, I've been a lawyer for 11 years, I think. Um, and I'm excited to talk about this. I, I think what Meredith said, I, I'm really excited to clarify all the misinformation. I think um, I'm so excited about Gascon and what we can do because this is the start of a big change. And I think it's the next step um, towards being the just society we should be. So I'm excited to be Very here. Thank cool. you. Thank you. And uh, Anna, lastly, we'll go for John. Okay. Oh, sorry. Just want to say Anna and I also started the public defender's office on the same day. Yeah. So. Oh, all right. Yeah. yeah. But nice. <laughs> Uh, and lastly, but not least, uh, John, we'll turn to you. Okay, thanks, and thanks for having me. I'm John Rafling. Um, I am a researcher with Human Rights Watch, which is an international human rights monitoring and advocacy organization. Um, I work in our U.S. program, so I focus on the criminal legal system within the United States. And so I look at policing, court systems, jails, and prisons. Um, from sort of a policy and big picture view, um, though that requires looking at very much at the details of these systems. Um, I've been doing that for about four years, and for 20-some years before that, I was a, a criminal defense and civil rights attorney here in Los Angeles, including 10 years in the uh, same public defender's office that um, our other guests were in. I started in the mid-90s, just as the three strikes law was ramping up. So it's an exciting time to be doing this work, uh, going from back then when three strikes was really uh, sort of uh, the, 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 the high point of the lock em up mentality, um, and to now where there's been such great organizing and and advocacy for change that has made a district attorney like Gascon possible and even necessary, and that will continue to be needed to um, hold him to uh, the promises that he's made. Nice. Thank you very much. So to get rolling here, because we have we have several topics that we want to cover. The the one I want to start off with is after this last election, we had a big fight over Proposition Twenty Five which was trying to kind of undo Senate Bill 10, which did away with money bail in the state of California. Out of that fight came kind of a, a wishy-washy um, settling on keeping cash bail, not replacing with algorithmic reform. But George Gascon came in and has pretty much tried to eliminate money bail in LA County. So John, maybe you can speak to that as to what the policy is and what the implications are going to be in the, the immediate term and the longer term. Sure. Um, thanks. And yeah, I, I actually, in 
in my work for Human Rights Watch, I've done a great deal of work around the whole pretrial detention issue of which money bail is one part and was strongly opposed to Prop 25 um, because it would simply replace money bail as one means of keeping people locked up pretrial with another means, um, risk assessment tools that use algorithms or and on sort of expanded judicial uh, discretion to lock people up. So Gascon, um, as a district attorney, has announced a policy, and maybe others can talk about how that policy is working, where my understanding of it is he's telling his deputies that they are, in most cases except for the most uh, serious and violent felony offenses, he's telling them that they should not be asking uh, that bail be set. Um, and that's, you know, in, in a sense, that's that's a huge thing, right? When I, when I practiced uh, law, it, the the DAs, the prosecutors, reflexively, it was it was just this is what they did. They would ask for bail to be set, and so you had a powerful figure in the court demanding of the judge to set bail and arguing that bail be set, because people who are in custody, because most people can't afford to pay bail, plead guilty quickly, which makes the prosecutors job, if they see their job as locking people up, uh, which they do, um, makes it a lot easier. So so it's a big thing that Gascon is saying, hey, we're not going to ask for bail to be set, which means that there's to be less pretrial detention. Amazing, a great precedent. Hopefully other DAs will do that as adopt policies like that. The the limitation is, though, because a lot of people are saying, well, Gascon has gotten rid of money bail. Well, no, he hasn't. He doesn't have the power or the authority to do that. When a person gets arrested and are booked at the police station, bail is set according to uh, what's called a bail schedule. And that's not a decision that the district attorney has anything to do with. So immediately for people who are brought into custody, they're having a bail set. And if they want to get out of jail, they either have to, they pay it or, or, or they sit in, in custody. Then, you know, within a few days, they come to court and there, there's a hearing where the judge sets, decides to set bail or to release a person. Now, as I said, if the DA isn't asking for bail, that makes it easier for a judge to say, fine, I'll give you what we call an own recognizance or OR release, let people out without bail. But the judge doesn't have to do what the DA says. And so a judge can just say, well, I don't care what George Gascon's policy is or what you're arguing. I think this person should stay in custody. I'm going to set a $100,000 bail. So it's a great policy that Gascon has initiated. It's a limitation. And what's important about that is it should not distract us from the need to actually change the pretrial detention and bail system. Mm-hmm. So I'll stop at that. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And so I'll turn to uh, the the other three uh, panelists. Um, maybe you can talk about how this has changed your experience, kind of day to day working in the courts. I'm kind of open to whoever wants to to lead off here. I'll I'll let I, I do have something to say, but I'll I'll let Akio go first. No, no, he looks like I, he's ready. You uh, there was there was one thing just in the in the very immediate sense. Uh, I have done a couple shifts in Department 30 downtown, which is the main arraignment court for felonies uh, since George Gascon, like right right after the uh, directives came down, I did a, a, a shift. And 
it's not my normal placement, but they were short staffed. What I what I noticed was very quickly, um, the judge was much more willing to release people on their own recognizance and was very frequent. A lot of people were released who would not otherwise, not in my previous experience, wouldn't have been, but were released with conditions, right? Specifically, people were placed on house arrest. People were given restraining orders. People were told, you know, this is where you need to be. This is what you need to be doing. This is how we're monitoring you. This is being referred to probation to keep track of you. And go go on your way, right? You're no longer incarcerated. And that, that alone, like just sitting there, like that one day was already a remarkable change in how things were uh, being done uh, compared to my prior experiences in arraignment courts. Um, and uh, the, the other thing I wanted to say, which I, I'm sure you guys might also want to mention, but there is something really irrational about how bail is set, like completely yes. nonsensical. When I was working in a misdemeanor court, one of the things that I would do regularly would be I would have someone coming in for arraignment on a charge, and I would explain to them, here's the offer from the district attorney. This offer is, you know, 30 days county jail or something. You already have credit for it, right? Or even sometimes time served. The district attorney's offer is time served. If you want to fight the case, I'll ask for you to get released on your own recognizance or for bail to be reduced. But if you're held, the trial is going to be in 30 actual fucking days from today. And so what we are doing right now is I am telling you how to put like what what's involved in pleading out because we are going to argue whether you're released. And if the judge denies it, you're going to turn around and say, fuck it. I want to get out right now rather than sitting in jail another 30 days, because for whatever reason, the district attorney thinks this person is too dangerous to release today, but they're not too dangerous to release today if they're convicted of something. It's absolutely fucking deranged. And the primary purpose of it is essentially uh, the creation of of convictions and calendar management, right? So that was <laughs> it's it's a very bizarre thing that shouldn't exist yeah. in the first place. Yeah. No. Thank you. That that's actually pretty enlightening. Uh, uh, Anna, uh, you wanted to chime in. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say it's it's still pretty early on since Gascon came in, so. Um, I will say that the, it is better and more people are not in custody, but people are still in custody and I'm not downtown. I'm at a different branch and I feel like where I am, um, the judges are more opposed to everything Gascon stands for. So almost just to prove that they're, they're dedicated to fighting him, they're keeping people in. So I had several clients that should have been released um, had it been, had they had their case filed, you know, the right day after Gascon was in place um, and after he put out his directives. But they were charged just before and um, the DA would say, per our new policy, you know, we are not going to oppose bail or we're not going to be oppose OR or bail and the judge would just say, well, I don't accept it. And they've, they've been doing that. So I think that there's still, there's still problems and the DA only has so much power. And um, we're meeting 
we're seeing a lot of opposition from the bench. And I think that's a, a concern that we need that hopefully will be cured after some time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure. I would it's add, pretty bad. I, sorry. I would no, add go ahead. Um, a lot of a lot of the bench is comprised of people who are former district attorneys who worked under Jackie Lacey, who Gascon replaced, um, or her predecessors. And so when I think that there are two aspects of the reforms that have been implemented that really kind of display that what uh, Ace was talking about earlier, that when we talk about systemic reform, we have to be careful not to just isolate to talking about police reform or even statutory reform, that all of these players have biases that have to be dismantled. And the judges are really, really, really displaying that with regards to bail and also sentencing enhancements. We've been getting reports all over the county um, about judges who are really digging in on the bail issue. Um, and I think it's particularly reprehensible because these reforms come at a time when we're in the midst of a deadly pandemic. A quarter of the people who are incarcerated in LA County jails are in quarantine at any given time. Um, and so really from a human rights perspective, we should be doing everything to get people out of those conditions um, and to see bench officers and, and um district attorneys kind of reluctantly say that they're asking for no bail to be set is, is just really kind of cruel and disheartening. I agree. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, especially in a pandemic, um, just locking anyone up into an environment where any kind of illness, but especially a virulent illness like COVID-19 just seems especially cruel. Uh, Ace, uh, what were you going to add? Well, I just wanted to take a question that popped up over here since, you know, you, uh, mentioned we are taking questions. But yes. the, a DA only has so much power because a judge has to make the final decision for everything. The question was, like, a DA only has so much power. A DA only has so much power. If a DA says, judge, we're not opposed to this person being released, a judge can say, fuck you and fuck this person, right? So the uh, in a, on a lot of things, the final say does end up with the judge. A district attorney has... Uh, an executive authority to decide whether or not they're charging certain things or whether or not they're pursuing certain things or presenting evidence on certain things. But a judge has a lot of power to give a middle finger to some of the other uh, other things that uh, a, a district attorney might be asking for. And really what you're seeing right now is that there are a lot of judges in L.A. County who are deeply invested in an extremely re- reactionary understanding of what their role is and what the system's role is mm-hmm. like you know like you hear you hear like very silly people commenting on how the law functions saying oh judges call balls and strikes and it's like <laughs> these judges don't think they're calling balls and strikes anymore these judges are thinking they're trying to put people away and that's what they think their purpose fundamentally is right? mm-hmm. uh, and so, so that's that's why it's only like the DA's office is only a portion of this, the whole question, right? Yeah, and I, I will say that it's also, it's also more concerning because most of them were DAs, which Meredith was saying, and I think, um, I've had I've, I've seen judges say, well, I think you're violating your duty as an attorney by asking or, you know, by saying this, which is you know per the DA's directives, I'm not going to oppose bail, right? 
the, the judges are saying that because they're kind of inserting themselves into the DA role that they used to occupy. And they never, they never, they never became judges. Like there's, there's mm -hmm. still, they're still prosecutors. And I think that's, a, it's still a problem. Yeah. I, I did want to turn uh, to an, an area where the district attorneys and specifically the, the DAs that you all deal with uh, do have a little bit more power. George Cascone has asked that a lot of low-level offenses, misdemeanors specifically, not actually be charged. So Meredith, I'm going to turn to you to speak a little bit about what this policy change means and like what we can expect from it. Yes. Um, so misdemeanors are um, low-level offenses basically under the law. The longest punishment a person can receive for a misdemeanor is up to a year in custody, which is still a tremendous <laughs> amount of time. Um, and it's a lot of quality of life offenses. It's a lot of offenses that are directly tied to a person's status, either their mental health status, their housing status, um, and other needs. So it's a huge, enormous system. And when you think about sort of the stereotypical like assembly line justice, a lot of that happens within misdemeanor court where, um, you know, my friends who staff those courts now see maybe, you know, 60 cases on their calendar every morning, um, even in a pandemic. So it's the, the new directives are really transformational. Um, and they call for the district attorneys just to not file a whole host of charges. So some of the highlights would be um, drug possession and paraphernalia, um, sex work. So like uh, loitering to commit the prostitution is the statutory language, um, which is charged a, a lot in certain regions. Um, there's supposed to be declination for most vehicle code offenses, so driving without a license, um, which mm -hmm. impacts a ton of people, um, uh, and also disturbing the peace, possession of alcohol, trespassing. So it's a really large array of um, crimes. And so we're, we're super excited about that. It should, the goal is to not charge based on the policies. And then if there are some exceptions met, then people would be given what's called the diversion program, which means you basically are provided with a program to do if you're able to complete it, then it's dismissed without ever entering into a plea. Um, so we're super excited. One thing I wanna mention is that LA County is such a large entity that the district attorney's office is responsible for most misdemeanor cases, but there are other prosecuting agencies. And mm -hmm. I wanna use this as an opportunity to flag the fact that in LA City, it's the LA City Attorney's Office that charges those cases. Um, there's gonna be an elect, Yes, there's going to be an election next year for um, the city attorney's race. Mike Cure is the current head of that office. He's running for mayor. Um, but the LA City Attorney's Office is really, really diabolical when it comes to charging misdemeanor cases. They have shown absolutely no interest in trying to track Gascon's policies. Um, they treat these cases like they're capital cases. They're very, very punitive. So for all of you mm -hmm. who are interested in organizing, that's an issue to flag for the near future. I think. Uh, I think one, uh, oh, actually, hey, hey, one, one, one yeah. second. I, I wanted to, to ask just qu uh, a quick follow up, Meredith, though uh, mm -hmm. misdemeanors aren't being charged by the DA. Is this having any impact on how LAPD and other law enforcement agencies are actually making arrests in those cases? Because the arrest itself, I imagine, has an impact on someone's life, even if it's just being taken oh, yeah. in and processed and then released. I really appreciate that question because you're absolutely right. Um, so there are still misdemeanor cases that are that are being charged because um, the Gascon's policy did not, you know, 
totally purge all of them from sort of the list, unfortunately. Um, I think that the whole system should be abolished. But um, I think it's going to take a while for LAPD and the Sheriff's Department to really kind of understand what those charges are. And I imagine they're going to continue to keep booking people in the hope that the district attorneys will decide to pin a single charge. And often when clients are arrested, they're already told by the police, you're charged with this crime. And often it's like a, a much more elevated crime than what that ends up being filed by the district attorney's office. So I think that that kind of thing is probably happening where police arrest someone, they scare them, they say it's this very serious offense. Then the report is actually taken to the prosecuting agency. The prosecuting agency looks at it and then maybe now they'll say they see nothing or maybe they'll just say that they see a much lesser offense than what the, the police informed the person. Does that make sense? No, that, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, Ace, uh, I kind of cut you off there. My apologies. I, I, I was just going to suggest if we're going to talk about like misdemeanors and the decision not to prosecute misdemeanors, you know, a lot of a lot of the fear mongering about around George Gascon's reforms is, oh, he's letting murderers go free or rapists run wild or blah, blah, blah. like the in the in the realm of misdemeanors that he's, his office is choosing not to not to prosecute. You see an incredible amount of stuff that can be described as an absolute waste of everybody's fucking time from the bailiff down to the clerk to the judge to us, everybody's. And for illustrative purposes, I thought it might be nice to ask the assembled folks some of the dumbest fucking misdemeanors that they've had to had to defend. <laughs> the, the reactions on screen are pretty priceless. Like those were some good gifts. Uh, um, I can I tell you the most heartbreaking. I, I don't know if that's it's not as fun, but um, uh, I can. I also I work, relevant because like misdemeanors <laughs> can also severely fuck up people's lives. The, the thing that's yeah. like that goes unmentioned is like if you catch a drug case, like a dr simple possession or a prostitution case. Oh, that can get you deported. That alone. Misdemeanor yeah, yeah. loitering for purposes of prostitution can get you deported. So like these things are incredibly destructive. And oftentimes they're somebody's first encounter with the with their own criminalization, uh, leading them down really fucked up paths. Um, but yeah, so some of these so the, the thing is like by diverting people at this stage, it's actually preventing much worse consequences down the line for literally everyone. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Meredith, um, uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, all right, my sad example. I practiced misdemeanors for several years in Compton, and within that jurisdiction is the women's um, jail facility, Linwood or CRDF. And so I would get a lot of cases for women who are incarcerated on very serious felony charges um, in the mental health unit. And while they were held there and they were suffering from acute mental health crises, they would um, sometimes take like urine or feces and put it in like a milk carton and then throw it at the guards. Or maybe there would be like vandalism related to just having a mental health incident. Um, and so those cases like either the damage to the property or the battery. So being touched by a harmful or offensive substance like urine um, would be charged as criminal offenses. And even, never mind the fact that it was undoubtedly true that they were existing in, uh, you know, the, actually the country's largest mental health facility is the LA County jail system. Um, and we're 
clearly designated as having those needs and were already facing very significant um, potential sentences for felony crimes. And I actually went to trial on one of those cases because they refused to dismiss it. Um, and we won um, because I think it's just uh, a disgusting premise for jurors. Um, but that's the kind of thing where we're wasting time and resources and we're really traumatizing people that we should be serving. Yeah. No, you know, Lee Baca, felon that he is, uh, I heard him one time with Larry Mantle pointing out that, you know, the, the prisons he runs are basically mental health facilities. And he thought that was very terrible and wrong. And his solution was give me more cops and more money, which doesn't make the problem any better. But it's Lee Baca. You can't expect too much. But uh, Anna, I'll go ahead and turn to you uh, for the, the next story. Well, I I had a couple from juvenile, but I don't even know if I'm at liberty to say, but I will say that you take a kid away from their home and their family and they they always charge them with felonies, not misdemeanors. And we'd be lucky if we could get a misdemeanor for things that they did in custody, even when they were mentally ill. Um, but what Ace was saying, the, the weirdest case, I had a guy um, who was an older gentleman and he had, he had one of those phones that you put on your belt, but he had like a belt loop. So you had to take off your belt to put the phone like carrier on, <laughs> on the loop. And I know it sounds weird, but I actually saw, I saw this thing. It was a belt loop. Like, you know, you put it on your belt and then you put your belt on, but you had to take your belt off to do it. Well, I guess he was, he was putting his phone back in the case and then sticks it on his belt. And a woman accused him of masturbating in public. So we went to trial on it. Um, <laughs> so I had, I had to, I was in, I was in trial and I was trying to show like, okay, so you're putting on your belt and I, I'm doing this in, in court. <laughs> I sort of won that case. I sort of didn't, but it was, it was so weird. I hate yeah, no, and, and all just for having like the most dad iPhone holder ever. That is so weird. Uh, John, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like, a, John, you know. Flip. Oh, like a flip phone. All right. Uh, John, I'll turn to you um, uh, to round us out here. Okay, you want a, you want a story of a dumb misdemeanor. Yeah, um, I, probably a, I got a few of those. Um, so I represented a, a guy who was living on the streets in Venice, and uh, he was also very much an activist. And there was an encampment on 3rd Street where anywhere from 40 to 100 plus people would be there every night. There's no bathroom. So my client, Mr. Bush, and I'm sure it's okay with him to mention his name. He's, he's a pretty well-known guy. Um, got a five-pound uh, you know, drywall mud bucket, an empty one. Someone donated a little tent. He got some wipes and some uh, hand sanitizer. And every morning he would take the bucket and take it down to the bathrooms at the beach and empty it out and clean it up. And it was a place for people to go to the bathroom. So he was charged with a public nuisance. And the police actually we went to trial on this. And they actually brought in the sanitation department who described all of the feces that they had to clean up off of the sidewalks and the planters and in the parking lot nearby. This was the prosecution putting these witnesses on. I was like, 
my argument to the jury was like, well, where, you know, where do you want it? Do you want it in the bucket or do you want it on the street? But the city attorney actually went to trial on this case. It was a, a three or four day trial with jurors time being spent. Um, so give you a sense of how important it was for them to crack down on homeless people and make their lives uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one thing about, if I can just back up and, and talk about one of the things that was brought up earlier on the whole misdemeanor thing, which is, so, and, and maybe I'm being sort of, not the skeptic, but the kind of glass half empty uh, person here. So it is absolutely fantastic that he's not pursuing these uh, these misdemeanor cases, and, and that's a that's a huge sea change from when, when I was practicing. When I when I did misdemeanors, I mean we had endless prostitution cases, right? Yeah. Where the prosecuting sex workers, um, you know, about poverty, petty theft. Um, you know, drug cases back then could could get you life in prison under three strikes. But 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 with a lot of these cases, right? People would not be spending a lot of time in custody, but the police can make an arrest. Even if they know that Gascon's not going to file a charge and hold a person in custody for between two and five days, right? Because you're, and this gets back to the whole pretrial incarceration and bail question, because if you're held on a a misdemeanor charge with a $5,000 bail schedule and you don't have $5,000 or someone to get you out, you're going to sit until you get to court or until the the district attorney no files the case. And if you get arrested on a Thursday, you're not getting into court till Monday. Um, So people are going to spend a lot of time and police use that. They've used that against activists over the years. I, I used to represent a lot of activists and they want to get a particular person off the street so they'll arrest him they know they're not going to have charges filed but they're getting that guy off the street and they're going to have him locked up for a couple days yeah um so so again kind of the message is this is great what gascon is doing it doesn't mean that we stop pressing for the bigger picture reforms yeah no i think that's a very very good point and i, I would like to add Oh, yeah, it is. No, well, no, I, I think, I think in in jur- in courthouses where the DAs or the filing DAs are more oppositional to what Gascon wants, which trust me, there's infighting right now. There's, I think, the DAs union is, is suing Gascon over his new directives. Um, they lost. You know, the oh, they did. Yeah, yeah, oh. like like that. Bad. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's, that's <laughs> where I'm at. Um, no, I, I mean, they'll file felonies probably. And, and that's actually what I'm concerned about is that, you know, I'm working felonies now. It's been a while since I've been in misdemeanors. But what I saw in juvenile and what I'm seeing now is they're overcharging the most trivial cases. And I have so many stupid felony stories. I mean, stupid felony stories, but they're overcharging because it's a good way to at least get a conviction if they're facing more time. So... If you're facing a misdemeanor, you're only looking at a max of a year. When you're looking at a felony, it's over a year. Usually, it's 16 months and up, um, and and people are more likely to plead. And so, if they really yeah. want to get this guy, they don't like him. He has a history of misdemeanors in the past. They're gonna they're gonna up up the charges. And I don't think 
I, I don't I don't know if Gascon's directives are actually going to help in that sense. I think we might get more felonies because of that. And uh, actually, Ace, I want to I want to turn to you real quick, uh, just as we shift gears a little bit. And I wanted uh, because both you and Anna worked in juvenile sent, uh, juvenile court, um, and so I wanted to yeah, talk a little bit it. about. Uh, yeah, too. I want. Oh, okay. Um, all of you did. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the changes Gascon has made. But also, a lot of the people watching on Twitch are wondering what can we do to support George Gascon? Like, do we just need to send him like a bouquet of flowers and say, keep on going, George? Like we showed up for Lacey and, you know, for, for more than two years, told her you're doing a terrible job and you need to go away. And then we beat her at the ballot box. We've seen what we can do oppositionally, but what could we do when we're in alignment with the district attorney? <laughs> that's a, that's an ad adventure. Uh, well, one is that there are groups that are organizing to continue to support the reforms that have been made and greater reforms, BLM is still doing the thing. Like they have a petition out right now in support of George Gascon. Uh, the there is also there is also like putting put making shows of support to the board of supervisors, to city council, to the mayor, to let them know that these things that are happening are are popular and powerful. Uh, putting pressure on you know it, it's hard to pressure the other DAs in the office. It's hard to pressure the judges because judges are very kind of inherently very resistant to public pressure unless it like lands directly on their asses because they get in the headlines or something like that. But by by pushing the uh, other associated um, elected officials and making sure that they understand that these things are popular, that these things are supported, uh, okay. is, that's how you create room and prevent you know, actual pushback. Because if if it's just the district attorney's off, if they're just like reactionary district attorneys in his office rebelling against him, part of what he needs is the clearance to smack them down. And part of mm -hmm. that comes from the board of supervisors, right? Mm -hmm. if, 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 if he's in a position where he needs to start charging LAPD officers, like how you do that, how you make sure that that goes through is you get the city city government off his back. So, you know, structurally, think about think about it as like this is only one person embedded in a much larger system, and the degree to which like like I feel like Gascon must have a fairly thick skin for complaints from people who are subordinate to him, given the number of different places he's been. Uh, so if like a DA is, is is whining, that's not really much of a thing. But if there's an issue with the board of supervisors, he's going to have a different set of uh, set of answers, right? Mm -hmm. So if the May board of supervisors, is, yeah, go. Yeah. Oh no, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, I have two things I think that we could be doing to help support. One is I, I don't know if folks who are listening um, have family members or loved ones who have been positively impacted by these directives, but I think it's really important in the ways that people feel comfortable sharing those stories to share them. Um, and if you want to be connected with the amazing groups that are organizing to help provide support and um, to amplify those voices, I think that's great because right now the news narratives are really dominated by these kind of like negative tales of um, fear mongering. Um, the other thing is that the, the judges are a challenge um, and it is very difficult to, to dismantle the judiciary. 
But I do think that what we're going to see is a lot of people leaving Gascon's office and trying to run for the bench um, because they're unhappy with the new directives. And so I think, you know, our hope for the union is to try to provide information about those races. We're relatively young and new, so we're, we're learning how to disseminate that information. I know Ground Game's really great at it. Um, and so I think paying attention to those races on, on the ballot um, is going to be really vital um, because it's, the judges need to feel like they're not isolated. Um, another thing I would encourage you all to follow Court Watch LA if you're not doing so already, because Court Watch is really an incredible accountability tool. It's built based on uh, a program that started in New York where people in the community would go in and watch court and basically see what's happening and share that via social media with people in the community. If you guys want to get involved in Court Watch, it's hard right now because of COVID. But when we emerge from this, we would really, really love to have you. Um, and it's a great way to say, I saw this with my own eyes. This is what's happening. And it's unacceptable to us. No, I think it's very important. We we talk or we see in the media a lot of talk about like victim impacts and we, you know, the the district attorneys are like, we're standing up for victims. We don't talk very much about the victims of the criminal legal system. We don't talk about how negatively that impacts families, how many people are wrongfully convicted, how many people take a plea because it's like two years versus 10 years. And like those people are victims too. And we need to start changing and seizing that narrative ourselves. And believe, I believe, John, you had something to, to chime in on. Uh, in terms of on supporting Gascon, um, I would add, in addition to the work Ground Game is doing and uh, uh, the Court Watch Justice LA, which is a sort of a conglomerate or a coalition of organizations um, that, <laughs> that 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 is doing a, a great deal of work around uh, our criminal legal system reform, um, has started a uh, judicial accountability table, and so. We're, I'm, I'm actually have been part of it. Um, and so we're working on exploring ways to uh, sort of expose bad judges and find ways to hold judges accountable. Because as we've been discussing, they're one of the central power points within the system. And they operate with very little oversight, or at least the oversight is negative oversight from within the institution of the judiciary. And even though they're all ultimately elected, even the ones who are appointed have to run for re-election, um, they, they're not answerable to the public uh, in any meaningful way. And so that's something we're working on, and we, we have to develop that sort of organizing power to uh, be effective in that way. And I would note, related to that, you know, two public defenders just won uh, judicial offices in San Francisco. Uh, Michelle Tong and Maria Jesus. I forgot her last name all of a sudden. The people I work with. But, uh, two, but two public defenders in San Francisco just won uh, judgeships. There have been um, big, actually really substantial successes in Las Vegas. A bunch of reform judges got on the bench. You know, like that's New gonna, Orleans. New yeah. Orleans, yeah. That's it's great. So, it's like this is something that people are are truly looking at and is going to be i know it's going to be something we're talking about in the next couple of years it's um, it's going to take time for oh, sure yeah it's oh, yeah. it's 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 one at a time but even the first couple like you know so so much of this stuff in the electoral realm is once you <coughs> people 
who think they think of themselves as invulnerable realize their like electoral mortality stuff changes fast because yeah. they don't feel like they they feel like they have to think about what they're doing on a day-to-day basis you know there was yeah. a yeah. there was a, a good question in that we were just passed from chris uh, about how many charges are drug and mental health related from somebody on periscope who says her son was just transported uh to who went from county jail to rehab rather than the streets and is doing better I really want, this is like a really good point to pivot to um, enhancements and start talking about that shit because yeah. I have a lot of stories already about this. Like th- this is something where we can start talking really concretely about like a, the enormous positive transformative effects that this, th- these reforms are having on people's lives and the effects on, for public safety of having these reforms, mm-hmm. you know, yes. because like the, like th- this is the this is the shit that it's all about. When people are saying defund the police, defund the police is saying there are other visions of public safety besides a guy with a gun who fucks you up if you're not white. Yeah. Like well, so so let's yeah. yeah, let's talk about enhancements then. We can we can turn there because there's been there's several different levels of enhancements that we're talking about here. So do we want to start kind of with the general one and then talk about like the gang enhancements specifically? Because I know gang enhancements in the city of LA is is it's a whole bugaboo on its own. So wherever you feel comfortable starting, let's let's just go from there. I mean, the, there's a long I, I think we can kind of talk like they all have to be kind of talked about in relation to each other. While gang enhancements are particularly uh, pernicious, they're just part of a broader scope of uh, these piecemeal increases in incarceration. I think John can talk very well about the sort of his, like how these all why we have so many of these things in the first fucking place right <laughs> sure so um you know in the past 40 to 50 years prison populations have increased by hundreds fold like i don't know 400 percent 500 percent some i don't know the exact numbers but just by outrageous amounts and um Enhancements are kind of one of the building blocks of that mass incarceration system. And what an enhancement is, is is basically you're charged with a crime. Let's say it's a robbery. And under California sentencing, um, God, and you all have, who are practicing still have to correct me. A robbery gets you uh, three, four, or five years, I think. Is that right? Or is it two? Two, three, two, five. Three, four. Two, three, yeah. or five. Okay. Yes, two, three, five. I remember now. Um, but and so that that's already okay. That could be a serious punishment. Um, but what they'll say is, well, you've been to prison before, so we're going to hit you with a prison prior. So that will add one additional year, just because you've been to prison before, or you've committed a robbery in the past, and so they have something called a five-year prior, and I'm forgetting six. Six seven a something like that. I forget the specific code section. And so, in addition to what you would get from the robbery, you would get an additional five years on top of that. Then, in ninety three ninety four, came the three strikes law, which said if you have prior serious or violent offenses, and there's a whole long list of them, then if you have one of those prior offenses, then you they double the amount of time. So, on that robbery, instead of five, you'd be looking at ten. 
plus the additional five-year prior, maybe. And if you have two prior serious or violent felonies, then you would get 25 years to life. So a life uh, in prison uh, with your first chance of parole after 25 years. What this did, as I said, they, they kind of all built on each other, is it just cranked up the exposure to prison and the, the length of sentences just by these astronomical amounts. And, and I'm telling you, when, when I first started practicing, I had cases where someone possessed one rock of cocaine, someone who either had a drug problem or just liked to use drugs, because not everyone who uses drugs has a problem with it, got caught, and they're looking at life in prison. I literally had those kind of cases, which is ridiculous when you think about it, yeah. um, but, but there was lots of them. Um, and so this built up, particularly through the 80s and through the 90s, and in the 90s, while well, I was practicing, they expanded who, uh, what strikes were. They said, well, a juvenile robbery is a strike. I think if you're over 16, but regardless, um, you know, and so, so all of a sudden these cases in juvenile court that for years had been treated like no big deal suddenly was something that would follow a person for the rest of their lives. A really important thing to understand about this is that it shifted the balance of power so vastly in favor of the prosecutor. And I'll also say in favor of the judge. And, and here's why. If you're coming to court and you're facing 25 years to life for, you know, a car theft, some relatively minor crime, you're facing 25 years to life and they say, we'll give you six years. If you plead out today, we'll give you six years. Most people are going to take that. Yeah. Right. Just like Ace described people who are sitting in custody on a misdemeanor because they can't pay bail and they're offered, we'll let you go today or you can sit for 30 days to go to trial, people are going to take the get out of jail sooner. They're not going to risk life in prison, 15 years in prison, 12 years. They're going to take a deal. And so what that means is convictions get produced more efficiently. Prosecutors have to put in less work. Judges move their calendars more quickly. And it's really important to understand that that's judges' main goals. They're not about justice. They're about processing convictions mm -hmm. as quickly as they can. They use pretrial incarceration, and they use these sentencing enhancements and the threat of, if you fight this case and you go to trial and you lose, I'm going to give you the maximum sentence. I'm going to give you 30 years, so you better take the six years we're offering you now so I can go get to the golf course by 10 o'clock today instead of having to have a trial. And so that's important to understand um, that that's the logic of the system. By getting rid of those enhancements, now the balance of power is shifting a little bit to where my max is five years. I may be willing to risk going to trial because I'm innocent or because the cop planted the dope. And so the more trials and the more litigation, the more likely you are to expose one that people are innocent, two that the cops maybe did something dirty. All of these good things that are about having an adversarial system that actually gets to the truth instead of a coercion system that forces people to plead guilty regardless of guilt or innocence. 
So, Anna, are you seeing an impact uh, on this like yet in, in your practice or is this something that you think you'll be seeing kind of more of coming down the line? Well, it's it's been hard because the, the cases that were already filed, the, the DAs are saying, well, I'm going to withdraw that charge or the enhancements. And the judges, most of the judges have been reading a form saying you're violating your ethical duties. Um, I haven't been in court this week, so I, I haven't had to deal with it. But um, it, it's just, it's awful because the DA is willing to strike the enhancements and the judge won't allow it. So I've gotten around it a couple times by doing a prelim and then the DA just would file the enhancements. But I have a life case that I'm, I, I was planning to go to trial on anyway and I'm still waiting to find out what's going on because I don't know if the judge will let them dismiss the enhancements. So we may have to go to trial. And it's a terrible case for the prosecution, but you know he's facing life and it's scary to go to trial. Um, I, was, I, I don't want to I wanted, risk it. Yeah, I, I also wanted to follow up. You, you kind of mentioned a story about a client of yours that was arrested with um, a baseball bat that was left by his nephew in his car. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Go, go ahead. So I, I was saying that this kind of shows just how bad enhancements are. I mean, I think we all have so many examples of just how abused um, the enhancements are. But I had a client who was pulled over for speeding by sheriff's deputies who conveniently don't have body worn cam cameras still. And they like to pull people over. Um, in Santa Clarita, especially because the officers tend to live there. So it's like, it's where they live and they want to get rid of anyone that's poor or brown or both. Um, and the, uh, sorry. And, 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 uh, they, they pull them over. They say, why, why are you, it's my husband. They say, they say, why are you, um, why are you oh, going no, he's so stealing fast? stealing your he says, files. Oh, there, there's <laughs> comic books. Um, <laughs> those are all comic books. So yeah, big child. So they pull him over, say, why are you going so fast? And he says, oh, I have to get to um, my shelter before 10 because I have a curfew. And they say, oh, a shelter, red flag. Are you on probation or parole? Yes, I am. Can we search your car? Yes. They find a t-ball bat, a child's t-ball bat, and charge him with having a billy club, which I think is 16 months, two years or three years sentencing, right? If you want to because talk about crazy shit, like the way that they have discretion to charge weapons of various sorts is something that will blow your goddamn mind if you don't know about this shit. It's, it's the only, I am not going to get charged with having a t-ball bat in my car. None of you guys are. They will go after, they will go after the undesirables, whoever they don't think belongs in their neighborhood. And it was so upsetting because this guy, he was running late from work and he had to get to, he had to get to his shelter. So they charge him with having this bat and he, he was let out of war because of the new directives, but he showed up to court late because he was scared to lose his job. We're in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of people are unemployed. This guy's working for pennies. And I don't think you, it's so hard to find a job when you have a prior felony. So this guy has a prior strike. He was looking at six years, six years for having a t-ball bat in his car. And it's because he took his, his five-year-old nephew to t-ball practice, gave him a ride home, and he left the bat in the car. Yeah. And I had a witness that, said, that was going to say that 
you know, it was his son who was in his car. Um, my guy showed up late to court and the judge put him into custody and said, well, he has prior strikes. He didn't show up on time. He's obviously not listening to the court. I mean, this, this is what we're dealing with. And so he was remanded. I ended up getting his case dismissed because I talked to the DA who was incredibly ethical, which is not normal where I am. Um, but it's, it's scary that you're facing so much time when you're already beaten down and it was a prior strike from years ago. The guy was just getting back on his feet um, after I think he, he had gone to prison for like a theft offense, but um, he was on probation for that. And that's why they could search his car. It's just, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the enhancements not being filed. No, it's it's especially frustrating because the guy has a job and that's what was causing him to be late. Like everything just falling into place against this guy who is not doing anything to deserve that. But before we go on real quick, I just wanted to do a quick time check for everyone. It's about nine. Want to make sure everyone's okay to hang out for like another 15, maybe 20 minutes if we're good with that. Sweet. Oh, sweet. There, there's a lot more to talk about. Oh, there is. There's a lot more to talk oh. about. There is. Um, there but yeah, so... So let's let's keep going. Do you all want to keep going on enhancements and stuff? Because I know this is a really deep rabbit hole, but we also can talk about the death penalty. Uh, we can talk about review of police killings. We've got we have several other topics that we wanted to cover. So well, I, I think for a lot for a lot of what people out there are thinking about, uh, the the discussion enhancements are really one of the things that's going to be most obscure and confusing to the layperson. But also, and one thing, one of the things that is, is the most uh, fear mongered around, and also one of the things that like we can really explain how important this fucking is because people get the death penalty, you know, like that, like that's kind of like an on and off switch. Like people understand either want the death penalty or not. Nobody's really losing their minds over it. But the way that uh, enhancements are being portrayed in the less scrupulous sections of the media, shout out to Bill M at Fox is absolutely dog shit. <laughs> like these, you know, here, like, let me, let me, look, I, I, so one thing, like the things that I need to get, I think really need to get across, be put across are enhancements are racist nonsense that does not make anyone safer. It just increases the number of years that people are getting in jail, mostly for things that are insignificant. People who are going to jail on big shit are still going to jail for very long time. Uh, two is that, the removal of enhancements levels the playing field in a way that any ethical prosecutor should actually fucking welcome because it makes them more likely to get to the fucking truth of guilt or innocence. I'll get to that in a second. And three is that getting rid of these things has incredibly important impacts on normal people's lives, and we can give hella examples of that. But to get to the first thing, like... The role of enhancements is primarily to stack up charges on black and brown people, especially young men, especially young men from certain neighborhoods. Things like gang enhancements, gun enhancements, prison priors, etc., are used to extract, are used to put enormous sentences on people who otherwise uh, would be facing extreme, you know, barely anything, or like a, a normal felony, two years, three years. Um, I have a client who's enhancements were recently dismissed he's a young man who was facing uh, a strike prior gang enhancement gun enhance and a gun enhancement he didn't have a gun he was accused he's accused of a robbery the person who is the principal in the robbery which is the person who actually did all the robbing had a gun 
in this 10 second thing, his idiot friend pulled out a gun, tried to rob somebody. And because he was there holding a, holding a six pack of beer and ran out after his friend, he's charged with a robbery with the yeah. person principal of the gun. So suddenly he's looking at 19 years, something like that for having an idiot friend. Right. And they, they tack on a gang enhancement because they say he's a gang member. But no, nobody says anything about a gang during the robbery. Nobody's wearing gang colors. Nobody's doing this and that. They can stack these things up however they like, right? It makes for an incredibly bizarre situation. Meanwhile, there's a case that was recently charged by the district attorney's office, and this one caught my eye for a particular reason. A woman who was suspected of driving under the influence, who is a very wealthy woman, was uh, an influencer of some sort, was just charged with two counts of murder because she, while driving at an extremely high speed, probably under the influence of alcohol or drugs, hit two young boys, killing both of them, uh, dragged one of them for like 100, 200 feet before she stopped and he fell off the hood of the fucking car. Like, and, it's, and so she's charged with, and I think, you know, I'm not, like, she's charged with two counts of murder and you know, two counts of vehicular manslaughter, negligent vehicular manslaughter, and a count of hit and run causing injury. She's not charged with any enhancements. There are no enhancements that she could be charged with. This person who did something so obviously fucked up that everyone in our society, like there's nobody in our society who's sitting there thinking, this woman drove drunk and ran over two little boys and like dragged one down the street for hundreds of feet. And like, like that, nobody's sitting here thinking that's fine. Nobody's sitting yeah. here thinking that has you know less of a negative you know less of a negative impact on our society than this kid getting stuck on like a dumbass beer run hold up with his yeah. idiot friend, right? But there isn't a single fucking enhancement that they could charge on this one. They're just they're just they don't exist, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, so, Meredith, I wanted to turn it to you real quick uh, to see if you wanted to, to chime in. <laughs> uh, no, I have. Um, I was thinking of one thing, which is I think that when we talk about enhancements, um, it's important to put it in context and what's happened in California in like the last, well, I'm talking about a decades-long process that led us to this moment. But I think we can say that we've been in a reform phase since maybe about 2013. Maybe, John, I don't know if you want to correct me. But I in 2013 is when Prop 36 was passed. And Prop 36 reformed um, the, the three strikes law, which passed in the 90s, which held that if you were convicted of three serious, if you had three felony convictions, you, you struck out. You're essentially sentenced to life. Um, in 2013, we began to peel away from that. And so at, at that time, uh, uh, many, many people were released from um, state prison um, through that reform. Uh, the L.A. County District Attorney's Office opposed release on every single one of those cases. Um, they had a unit that continues to exist to oppose the release of those folks. Um, well, hopefully it's been disbanded. Um, so that was step one. Uh, a couple years later, voters uh, passed Prop 47, which changed similar sentencing laws. Um, and in LA County for both of those propositions, it was passed by a majority. Um, there was prop 57, which changed the way that people get credits in state prison, which should help them come home sooner. So this was an evolution. And at each point, voters in LA County were in favor of that. Um, and so Gascon's not coming in, um, and sort of just 
revolutionizing. He's taking it to the to the next step. And I think that um, Jackie Lacey and, and the campaign made a lot of statements um, to suggest that this was just sort of, and I think the DAs now are embracing this idea that th- what Gascon is doing is illegal and it's out of step with the will of the people. And I think it it's really, really important to understand that that couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and- I, I think Gascon is just really kind of taking us in the direction that the communities are asking us to go. Yeah. And I, I would like to point out, um, Meredith brought up, we talked before we, we came on here, Meredith brought up how, um, I believe it was Koretz. Um, oh, Koretz, my, yeah. my absolutely terrible city council member, we're going to beat you for controller, sir. Your <laughs> political career is over. Uh, anyways, go ahead, Anna. <laughs> so he, he was talking about hate crimes and how they weren't going to charge hate crimes. And I believe that they backtracked and said that they would charge hate crimes. But... I, I think that he, when he was talking about the enhancements, um, that's oh, yeah. not a thing. I mean, there's there's an actual crime for hate crimes, so you don't need the enhancements. So it's not like it's not like you're going to not charge people for vandalizing a swastika. You could just charge yeah. them with the charge of a hate crime instead of adding on extra time. Um, yeah, there's I mean, also and and they're not letting out rapists or pedophiles either. Just, yeah. just FYI, they're not. With regards, to the, with regards to the hate crimes one, because a lot of really shitty people made a lot of noise about like that particular enhancement. How many hate crimes have you seen charged by the district attorney's office? Never. I've never had a what? single never. client charged with a hate crime enhancement. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this as a good pivot point here because Jackie Lacey kind of came to notoriety by winning the first death penalty sentence for a hate crime here in the county of Los Angeles when she was a prosecutor. And that was her big like coup de grace. She even talked about that like on her website. But George Gascon has uh, said that he's going to stop charging people with capital punishment, something that Jackie Lacey has been doing a lot of, even though L.A. isn't really carrying that out. Now, I, I don't think any of you have actually tried capital cases, um, but I imagine that kind of thing will have a little bit of a, a filter down effect, that the way that we treat the most serious crimes is going to change the way that crimes in general are treated and also kind of set a different tone, especially here in L.A., where like we have, I think, 18 people on death row right now, and none of them will ever be executed. It's, it's kind of a, a waste of everyone's time having that. But um, I was hoping you all could comment a little bit on that and what that signal sends to uh, people who are working in courtrooms day to day. And I, I, this is open to whoever, I guess, uh, Anna, you had your hand up. Sorry, I know, I, I just wanted to say, I think, I think with the death penalty being taken off the table, it means that they're gonna resolve the more serious cases sooner, um, possibly. But, you know, I was thinking, I don't know if any of you saw that documentary about, Gabe, I think it was Gabriel, for, uh, Gabriel Hernandez, the, was it Fernandez, the, the little boy who was murdered by his mother. <laughs> And That's the example they love to use. No, and they love to use that. But here's here's the thing. The mother pled. She pled. She didn't get the death penalty. And she was the one who was pretty much, I mean, she was the leader. She's the reason that boy died. And I believe that her boyfriend went to trial because his family was urging him to go to trial. And he got sentenced to death. It's not about punishment. And I, I think that's what people didn't get about about the death penalty before. It's not like they're putting the most heinous people on death row. Usually people are pleading out. It's a bargaining chip. And and it, it makes you plead. And I think 
it, it was it was abused before. Like no one should be put to death, no matter how horrible their crime is. And I think it will it will help kind of suss out actual justice um, in the future, and it will it will trickle down to lower lower offenses. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, I think. I think that right now the death penalty in California and for many years has been really a conversation about what a person's housing looks like in CDCR uh, at the, in the prison, because if you are sentenced to death, you live on death row at San Quentin, which is um, obviously the most restrictive conditions. It's basically a solitary confinement scenario. Um, and if you're sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, which is likely to be the offer from the district attorney's office in lieu of a death sentence, um, you have the ability to exist on other yards within the state prison and participate in other programs. Um, and so that's we, we spend as taxpayers a tremendous amount of money um, litigating death cases. And, you know, people now people are dying in state prison right now. I really want to emphasize that because of COVID we've lost 12 people in the, in the first six days of this year. Um, so death is happening, but um, we don't put people to death in California. Um, we haven't in a very long time. So these resources should be freed up um, to pursue other things. Um, if you're looking at it from a prosecutorial mindset, it could be put towards prosecuting um, other cases to the extent that they should be. Um, so I think that that's an impact that we're going to feel because um, we're really just wasting a ton of money on the entire system. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a it's a it's a especially in California, especially right now where there's a moratorium on executions. It's a nonsense sort of procedure that if if people if ordinary people understood like what sort of what sort of litigation goes on in a death penalty case they would, I'm pretty sure, want to get rid of the entire thing just by its nature. It's an incredibly uh, damaging and expensive way for, on some level, perhaps a prosecutor to put a feather in their hat to no mm -hmm. actual effect on society. Uh, a, lot, a lot of these things really... Um, you know, is removing uh, removing enhancements and enhancements are actually part of how you get to a death penalty sentence, right? That's how you get from an ordinary murder to a murder that is a capital murder. Getting rid of these things is something that a a honest and reasonable prosecutor should desire. It removes the urge of an innocent. It reduces the likelihood that an innocent person will plead guilty if they are facing the actual amount of time for what they are charged with rather than some abstraction cooked up in the prosecutor's laboratory. It makes it more likely that a, a guilty person will plead out. If, you have a, if you're working in felony practice as a public defender, you have a lot of trials where you know you don't have a real defense. But the problem is what the prosecutor is asking for is so absurd yeah. For the conduct that you are going to going to trial and dragging like 15 people in or you know, dragging hella people in from the kind of making 50, 15 people sit in as the jury, 12 and three alternates usually, and listen to this whole, go through this whole thing, whole song and dance, just because there's a disagreement about the number of years. Whereas, you know, for my, I know for some of my clients, once these, you know, some of my once these adjustments were cut off. 
certain things started resolving very quickly. Okay, yes, I did that. Two years, three years. Okay, I accept that. Okay. When they were talking 12, 19, people were like, that's insane. I'm not going to subject myself to 19 fucking years without a trial. Right. So like an actual honest prosecutor is going to say, well, now I don't have to do those dumb trials for no goddamn reason. I also no longer have to, you know, I'm not sitting there saying, God, this person fled out and might have been innocent because I threw an extra 10 or 20 years at them. And I offered, you know, I had, I have a client, I had a client last, last year, she was time is a flat circle, uh, a, a wonderful guy who was charged with possession of a firearm by a felon. Uh, with gang enhancements, and he had a prior strike. He used to be a gang member. He was covered in tattoos head to toe. Um, and, like, God bless his ass, he said, he said, fuck you, set it for trial. And even when they offered him a misdemeanor, he said, set it for trial, because if even if I'm on just summary probation, I know like the cops in my neighborhood are just going to fuck with me for the next three years until they get me on something. Yeah. And... Thankfully, like with the help of a wonderful investigator at our office, I was able to like he walked right out the door um, with the jurors were convinced that the cops were making everything up and, you know, sent him on his way. But he was looking at like 11 fucking years. Well, and so not, that's... not 90 people have that sort of like cold blood to, you know, stare that down and say, no, I'm going to go for it. That's well, funny. actually, I want to I want to turn real quickly to our, our last subject we're going to have time to discuss today. Um, about some real cold-blooded, uh, hopefully, defendants in the future. And this is reviewing police killings <laughs> that were not charged. And this was a big one against Jackie Lacey. So, John, I'm going to turn it to you first um, to kind of explain what, what this process involves and, like, maybe why we haven't seen a lot of police charged with murder, even though L.A. is one of the deadliest places for police in the entire nation or, or has the deadliest police in the entire nation. Sure. Well, um, I forget the number, but it's something like 600 people have been killed by police since 2000. It's somewhere in that magnitude. It's a lot. And 600 during Jackie Lacey's. During Jackie. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah since, since and, 2013. And, since she didn't, and she hasn't filed uh, charges on any of them. And maybe she filed some minor charge, but she hasn't filed a uh, serious charge, and she certainly hasn't filed murder charges. That includes a case that I actually handled uh, in civil court representing the family of a, a young man who was killed in Venice, shot in the back twice by an LAPD officer, caught on video. I saw the video. The video was not made public for law reasons that are also, well, uh, but I saw the video and, and there was no excusing what this guy did. The chief of police said, following a thorough investigation, and police investigate their own, and their investigations are designed to uh, shield the department from liability and excuse uh, their officers. The chief of police said, this guy needs to have charges filed against him. This was, uh, this was Chief Beck, correct? Chief Beck, yeah. This, yeah. Uh, this and, was 2000, May of 2015. And, and this particular officer was subsequently arrested for domestic violence in his home of Huntington Beach, uh, which that all tracks with what we know about officers who kill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, officers, uh, domestic violence among police officers is very uh, prevalent, uh, as is drunk driving. Um, 
the police commission, which usually uh, has a pretty light, easygoing touch on police officers, similarly said, now nah, this guy needs to have charges filed against him. Lacey sat on it for three years, maybe. And then, and, and this guy was from out of town. And so he, he there, there were activists who were supportive, uh, you know, who, who were lobbying for, for some consequence, but he didn't have like family in town pushing it. And so she sat on it for a while and, you know, waited till people kind of forgot about it and then tried to quietly announce, hey, we're not filing charges. I mean, she had the cover of the chief of police saying to file charges. She had a video. I'm telling you, I, I've seen the video. Um, so it gives you an idea of how uninterested she was in holding these guys accountable. And this is this is so prevalent across the country. I mean, just yesterday, the, the uh, um, Kenosha district attorney for a bunch of nonsense reasons, refused to file charges on the officer who shot Jacob Blake in, in the back multiple times. Um, but anyway, so so the fact that the district attorney will not hold police officers to obeying the law is one of many, but a, but a significant factor in allowing police officers to understand that they can do what they want and get away with it. Yes. Gascon, who my understanding is he didn't have a particularly great record up in San Francisco of prosecuting police, so uh, we'll, we'll we'll see what he does. But to his credit, he says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, put more scrutiny on police officers." He says he's reopening some of these cases, including the the uh, the Brendan Glenn case, which is the case in Venice I was talking about. Reopening it doesn't mean filing charges, so we'll see what happens. Um, the the benefit of the doubt that they don't give to any of our clients, <laughs> they give massively any conceivable benefit of the doubt, uh, they will give to the police in, in justifying a decision not to file charges. But, you know, to his credit, he says he's going he's gonna to reopen that case and he's going to reopen some others. And hopefully he will live up to that, and that will be at least a piece of accountability um, for police. You know, again, let's see what happens. I, I'm not, uh, um, you know, it, it's not it's not done yet. And then, of course, these cases are difficult to get um, get convictions on. And part of it is district attorneys need to have the district attorneys are not well equipped to prosecute police. In general, they should have uh, uh, independent prosecutors uh, work on them. And I don't know if he said he would try to do that. I forget whether that was something he talked about. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I think he's discussed it, but I know that uh, Rachel Rossi made it a very big, mm-hmm. made it a very yeah. clear part of her platform. Um, I don't. I don't know where he's where he's going to ultimately land on that. But I think a thing that would be enormous in terms of police accountability is actually not the murder prosecutions because it is, as you mentioned, very hard to, you know, there is a high legal burden. Like one of the thing, interesting things about Gascon is that he said, I haven't charged as many cops as I might have otherwise because of the high legal burden. Then he did 
uh, like endorse uh, AB392 even before it got watered down by the cop unions, which would have lowered that standard. And so, like, I guess he's like putting his money where his mouth is, at least in that sense. But it is a higher standard to reach, and it's a higher standard to convince a jury that a killing was, you know, was uh, unjustified in that sense. There's there are lots of tricks they can pull, and DAs often throw those fucking cases anyhow, frankly. Mm-hmm. But the thing the thing that would really, I think, have a substantial impact on how policing is carried out is charging lower level shit. You know, charging the assaults, charging the perjury cases. Yes. Charge it like, you know, if somebody is going around harassing people, beating people up, lying on the stand, nail them. Take their gun away, well, take their badge away. Like, that's how you get, you know, th- that's how you get rid of the people who are going to shoot people later on. Yes. Also, just don't call them um, to the stand. So I think there's like, there's a growing movement to have a do not call list. Um, and that, that has been a call from the community and from us for a while because we get we have a difficulty in gaining access to information about who bad cops are right so we get that information from our clients um, and that is very reliable but we can't necessarily bring that in to a case and so prosecutors have dossiers of information about the police um, and that side of the system has access to their personnel records and a conscious and ethical po- prosecutor should be making the choice not to, to rely on those officers in the, their cases. So I'm hopeful that we'll see a push from Gascon. I do know they've made some changes in their police accountability unit that I think are really promising. Um, and so I think that from misdemeanors on up, we could be doing a lot better in ensuring that that public defenders or defense attorneys get access to the information that they need to properly interrogate these officers. Um, and that prosecutors from the outset are making a decision not to rely on police officers that they know should should not be trusted that would that would go along with uh publishing the they call it a brady list right exactly yeah exactly which yeah. brings us into a whole fun <laughs> in a way of a conversation yeah. but that's a topic for another day right? <laughs> yeah. well hey uh anna i um, want to see we're, we're about to close out so did you did you want to make one last comment on this subject no no i mean i'm look i, I i'm all about I'm all about prosecuting cops for anything. And I do think that there's a lot, a lot of low level offenses that are magically, they go away and we get some of that information when we go to prelim, um, or after shortly after. And I've had lots of domestic violence assault or, or assaults or drunk driving. We've had a few stalking. They, they, the prosecutor decided not to prosecute. And I wish that they gave that to my clients because there's usually more, more to prove that these officers did something and they choose not to prosecute. And then with my clients, they don't even bother to look into it. So um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that they do prosecute them more often for everything, including shootings. This, is, uh, this has been an absolutely amazingly informative show. And I wanna thank you all again for taking the time out of your very busy lives doing your very important jobs to like, come in and help educate us and the audience. Uh, as we round out here, I was just gonna go around the horn one more time and just say, ask, how are you feeling about the next couple of years with the criminal legal system here in LA? You know, are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling cynical? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? I'll just, uh, I'll go Ace, Meredith, Anna, and then John. So just kind of the order on the screen. Well, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling very good about the reforms that were proposed, even with the 
sort of watering down of a couple of them that came, uh, you know, after his initial reforms, it still, you know, really exceeds my expectations in terms of what can be done. Um, especially, but you know, I think that a lot has to be done to fight the misinformation that's out there because people are treating it as people uh, like letting chaos reign and murderers walk the streets. And it's, you know, that's not, that's not what's going on. I want to like kind of throw out a couple examples real quick, just to really nail down like what I've experienced with these, you know, reduction, the elimination of enhancements. One is one of those cases that everybody, you know, would love to talk, you know, all these people would love to talk about a person has, uh, oh, their gun enhancement is dismissed. Their gang enhancement is this, this, blah, blah, blah. This person's charged with attempted first degree murder. The DA was attempting to kind of worm their way out of dismissing the additional allegations and had the, the, uh, complaining witness come to court and tell the judge, oh, like, you know, this is horrible what he did to me. I want the want the book thrown to him. I want the maximum sentence. And this was a, a judge who I rather like. And thankfully, he took a look at him and he said, took a look at the DA and said, what's the maximum sentence with the enhancements? And the DA said, life in prison. And he said, what's the maximum sentence without the enhancements? And the DA said, life in prison. And the judge <laughs> looked at the looked at the DA and said, Considering while considering the seriousness of this offense in the interest of justice, I believe that life in prison is an adequate potential maximum in this case. <laughs> and, you know, so like uh, many of the cases, the, the most heinous cases where uh, enhancements are being dismissed are things where the enhancements are have no function other than to perhaps, you know, delay the date at which somebody could be considered and then denied their parole or, you know, tra transform, some, transform something from. You know, oh, it's 25 to life instead of 15 to life. This is that's not the basis of a rational justice system, right? Yeah. The goal should be safety and rehabilitation and a functioning society, right? not not inflicting as much harm on people as we can in a retributive sense in order to you know in order to injure others. But by the same token, oh well, I, hey, 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 so I'm gonna, I, I, I I'm gonna I, cut I got, you off I, there. I'm I, gonna. I gotta hit this one. I gotta hit this one. Okay. All right. <laughs> I have a client who was charged. I have a client who was charged with his third serious or violent felony, a third strikes case, straight up three strikes case, a 422, which is criminal threats against his father. This guy spent 11 years in a mental asylum after being charged with his previous case. Uh, when he was, when his, they finally decided he was, uh, was rational again, they brought him into court. He accepted a plea deal and was released on his cases. This is where he gets his strikes after spending a, over a decade in a, in, in the mental hospital. He's released onto the streets. He goes, he's extremely mentally ill. He goes to his father's place and is trying to live with his father, but is unmedicated and er, in irrational because he was just dumped on the streets with no support and his father kicks him out and he says to his dad i'll fucking kill you let me back into the apartment or i'll kill you and that's charged as a third strike 25 to life three strikes felony because of his enhancements when gascon came into office and made his directives the enhancements were 
removed and he was allowed to and this is after spending another year at the mental hospital like this has been dragging on for a while he was allowed to enter a plea to the charge for probation and go to a inpatient mental health treatment program through the office of diversion and reentry so like that's what this actually fucking means it means that instead of warehousing people that society doesn't like we're trying to help people and trying to make things better and trying to make things safer for everybody. That's mm. what's fucking up. Mm. Uh, Meredith. Okay. <laughs> I'll say that I feel optimistic. I think that um, as public defenders, it's really important that we continue to nurture optimism. Otherwise we probably should not be doing our jobs. Um, and, but sometimes we have this idea that it's just like us and our clients against the system alone. Um, and that's, in this moment and for the last couple of years, I think in LA, I have felt like incredibly seen and supported by the organizing community. There are such incredible groups who are doing the work um, to help support our clients and the communities that we serve. And I just feel so optimistic about the work that everyone is doing. And I'm very appreciative of that. And I think that um, from stopping the jail, the election of George Gascon. Um, we've really shown the power of organizing in LA and we're paving the way for the rest of the country. So I can't wait to see what happens next. Very cool. Uh, Anna. I'll keep it short. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm also really excited to be working here at this time and helping continue forward with reform. Um, but I do still think we have a long way to go and it's, it's not going to happen overnight, but we're lawyers and we know that it takes time and we're willing to put in the work. So with that, thank you so much for having us on. Oh. I think it's important to talk about. Yeah, no, thank you all very much. And lastly, John, we'll turn to you to close us out. Okay. Um, thanks. Yeah. Thank you for having us. I think it's really a, an important service that we get some of, you know, like what's really going on uh, with this stuff out there. Um, I, I would really echo what, what, Meredith said about the importance of organizing, um, and I'm sure said it a couple of times. With you know, Ground Game, Justice LA, Black Lives Matter, LA Can, Stop LAPD Spying, um, um, Union de Vecinos, like all these great groups throughout Los Angeles, uh, Silicon Valley Debug up in Northern California that, that that are doing work on these issues, connecting up with each other, and making it possible, making it necessary for someone like Gascon to pursue these policies. He, would, he wouldn't got elected if he hadn't have come and said, this is what I'm going to do. And that's because of the power that we are building. And, and I, I particularly want to shout out to the LA County Public Defender Union, which has very much been a part of this organizing and something we didn't have when I, when I was a PD and um, is... It's just a, a really powerful thing. Being a public defender is an incredibly hard job. You're fighting against judges, prosecutors, police, you know, the heroes on TV who are really the most corrupt pieces of crap in, you, you'll ever come across. I mean, with a few exceptions um, that I can't think of right now. Um, <laughs> and so um, it's, it's it, it, the, the future bodes well in this area as long as we continue to build that power and, and uh, work together and support each other. And, and I appreciate being able to be part of this and appreciate Ground Game and, and uh, the knock for uh, putting us on here. 
Yeah, thank you all so much again. Thank you to the audience for sticking with us. Uh, this has been a lot. Uh, feel free to keep adding us on Twitter, on Instagram. You've got questions. We've got answers. We have some smart people that can help us figure our way through this. Everyone have yourself a lovely night. Be safe out there. These are going to be really weird, scary times. But remember, we protect us.